Welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. All your models are destroyed, so you got a rebirth. While you're playing with your toys, we be building for the win. Slaying with the boys, taking pick on for a spin. Yo, I do it for my kin. See me stack until I overflow. I back into my flow, dropping haters like a domino. Kicking in the market like a bull inside a rodeo. And verbal like a Cicero or Michael Marcantonio. Never been this good, best is yet to come. I know you said you would, but don't forget to run. You gotta bite the bullet, life is better when you're bullish. Yo, I hope you understood it's never worth unless it's fun. So get up off the fence, cause it's time to reinvent. The present can be tense, but the future is immense. Get outside your lane, get your tapestry displayed as the strategy conveyed here on Galaxy Brains. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Michael Mark Antonio from Galaxy is our guest. We're going to talk with Michael about DAOs, about NFT licensing, uh, about MEV, and a bunch of other interesting topics. Before we, of course, we're going to check with our good friend Bimnet at BB from Galaxy Trading. As always, to talk markets. Look at Bitcoin on a massive tear, up over like 30 or 33 percent since its cycle bottom, its yearly bottom of 38.5 in just 23 days. Crazy, crazy price action. We're going to get into it with Bimnet. Before we get to that, I need to remind you to please refer to link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or a solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Phineas, it's cold in New York. It feels like winter finally. It was like 50 or 60 degrees a few days ago, but today in the 30s and a big snowstorm, we were told. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, I wouldn't say big snowstorm. We got some snow. I mean, every flight was canceled. Yeah. There was uh, hysteria. The mayor uh, begged people to stay in their homes, uh, but there's no snow on the ground. <laughs> Look, it happens every year. We freak out. I think it's more, an ex- it's a wink-wink so everybody gets a snow day and can stay home. Well, and- th- this is what I want to bring up to you because I read that New York public schools did not get a snow day. Oh, They really? forced everyone to do remote learning. Which is unpleasant. I, I was talking with an Uber driver. He told me that his six-year-old daughter, who's in first grade, had to spend six and a half hours on Zoom. It's such a difficult problem. Yeah, you know, remote work make, I mean, remote school makes sense in the same way that remote work makes sense, but gotta be tough on the kids. Does it make sense for a six-year-old child to spend six hours on Zoom instead of outside throwing snowballs and making snow angels and snowmen? I mean. What has the world come to, sir? For, maybe for you know older kids, I get it, but does a first grader really need to be doing that? You learn more doing that outside yeah. than you do on Zoom. Probably. I was very upset. Yeah. Snow yeah. days were a rite of passage. Yeah. All right. For me too. My gosh, we had snow days. Exactly. You know, pretty frequently. Yeah. And it was always so and, fun. And, and they add, they they pay for more yeah. days yeah. in order to cover for those. I mean, look, if you're going to cancel the snow days, I think the taxpayers want that money back for those extra days. I just, I'm very sad about this. Um, as a parent, I would never allow my child to do six and a half hours of Zoom. Uh, I hear you. I'm with you. All right. Let's not get upset. We got a great episode. Let's get right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Wow. Yes. <laughs> wow. I can really say wow. Speechless. Um, I was looking at the, the, so over the weekend, we ran up into 48, 49 territory. Monday, we crossed 50. Then a CPI comes out, which we'll talk to on Tuesday morning. Yeah. All the risk comes off a bit. Bitcoin comes off, frankly, less or finishes the day Remarkable down less than, than, than equities. Yeah. Um, but you, you kind of get a BART pattern. Um, but then 
we just rock it right back up. And now we're at yearly highs again. I mean, what is it, 50, 51.6 over our shoulder, but it's been as high as 52, a little bit above 52. I don't know what that pattern is, the, the up, BART, down, and then, like, rock it again. I mean, what's going on with the relentless bid on Bitcoin? It's just passive ETF inflows, and they have been more than material yeah. and well above anyone's expectations. And then what's happening is folks are seeing these figures and then trying to front run or anticipate what future inflows are going to look like. And so folks are buying spot Bitcoin. They're buying options, upside structures, fresh all-time high stuff. Crazy. Um, and on top of that, you know, like S&P and NASDAQ are still only like a couple of percent off all-time highs. The broader risk background, even with rates selling off after uh, CPI is still constructive and healthy. What, what you're seeing happen is a ton of passive inflows yeah. into a product that has limited supply, into a product that has a supply catalyst coming up in two to three months. This is what happens when growing or massive demand yeah. smashes against immutable scarcity. Exactly. And, and to be honest, like for me, like I look at the short term stuff a lot. But it's really hard not to think about like the big picture implications now of just what will years and years of passive inflows, you know, all these asset managers that now have, you know, Bitcoin on their platforms, what the outcome of that is going to be, uh, let's say five, 10 years from now in terms of Bitcoin prices. And my mind has a hard time like grasping that. And I think it comes down to this concept, which is, you know, human brains are generally bad at understanding tail scenarios, like 5% probability or, or less. Um, and so thinking about, you know, Bitcoin price going up, you know, 100, 200% is like, it's hard yeah. just functionally for the brain. And, you know, but more and more I find myself in that area. And it's the first time in a while where like I wake up and I'm like scared that Bitcoin's run away from me. Yeah. Before I've gotten a chance to accumulate more. <laughs> I know. I woke up. It's it, This was a f common feeling um, during like the 2020 yes. and 21 two bear, uh, bull market when it was like, um, this. Uh, even in 17, I remember this too, is like you'd wake you'd like wake up during that market and be yes. like, what happened while I was asleep? And first thing you look at your phone and there were days where it's just like up two, three, five, eight yeah. percent when you wake. You're like, what happened? No, I mean, and You're just like I wasn't bullish enough. Correct, and and the thing to think about is is that like just just take for example the uh, sailors flows, right? Uh, you know when he's buying and he's buying, you know he's buying like a, a yard over like a month or two months, and like the ETF inflows are like a yard in three days now. Yeah, yeah, it's and, wild. And the math is just like the supply is just getting taken out of the market. Yeah, I think I think you said it earlier. Like, I, really, a lot of no one. Well, not no one, but a lot of people in this short time period really did not expect this. I think everybody is kind of frankly blown away by the magnitude of the ETF inflows. We had thought, and we talked about this, that like, you know, after the initial like seed and internal capital went in, there was a period where we were like struggling to see. Yeah. Like, you know, we didn't think the advisor platforms were going to turn on yet. They still haven't. Right. Yeah. We didn't. The having was still three, four months away. Right. Sort of like struggling. And, and, and we talked about this and. I mean, Bitcoin did go down to 38.5. I think we thought, I thought at the time that it would go a little lower and stay there for a little longer. But then over the last 22 days, it's up 35%. Yeah. And now it's like the 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 
these ETFs are, are mostly being bought on retail brokerage platforms, not just by like, you know, small dollar retail investors. Big investors can go there too. And you're going to see those, uh, who, which big investors bought because of 13F filings yeah. for the first time. Yeah, one so of those gonna, comes. Uh, I think it's March, April yeah. uh, area. Um, so but it's, it's like we had, yeah. we had sort of said like it, it feels like a crab market until the like the platforms really turn on the yeah. access to these vehicles. And then, and then obviously it's bullish. So we're sort of like it's crab to bullish. But now you're looking at these flows and saying, wait a sec, is is like the baseline a lot more bullish? And then what happens if it gets really bullish? bullish? Exactly. And it's, it's also a function of just that positive price convexity uh, and the positive like price feedback loop where it's like, oh shit, Bitcoin's price is going up. Why? People ask why and they come to the conclusions, these ETF inflows, and then they do the math. They're like, holy shit, this could go a lot higher. Right. And then the price keeps going higher and more and more folks, you know, buy into the, the rationale and it becomes this this spiraling feedback loop. It's crazy. No, that you're up up breeds up, right? The positivity breeds positivity. Real quick, just on CPI. It came in, I guess, the analysts are saying a It came in expected. hotter than expected, and the, the Fed's measures of, you know, the, the Fed's preferred measures of, like, super core CPI were also really hot. There were some seasonal elements to it. This was a January print, and there's a lot of, like, year-end price hikes that get processed in, in that data, and so it might be a little distorted. But overall, um, it doesn't seem like the, the Fed got, the, what it needed to, yeah. to to really get more aggressive in terms of, of easing or, or the language around easing. Um, and so that has shaken markets a little bit. And the fallout from that is, is still to be determined because you still have a lot of data between now and the March FOMC meeting. Um, but long story short, you've seen a dramatic repricing of the interest rate market over, over the past, you know, since, since the start of the year, mm -hmm. um, where you've priced out a ton of cuts. Um, and you're now much closer to what the Fed expects in their, in their dot plot, at least, which is, you know, two to three uh, cuts. Yeah. And so now you're kind of getting to the sweet spot where it might actually make sense that things go back the other way, because I don't think we're, we're in a hiking cycle again. Right. Bimnet Abibi, my friend from Galaxy Trading. Thank you, as always. We'll let you get back to the desk. Awesome. Thank you. Let's go now to our guest, Michael Marcantonio, director at Galaxy. Michael, thank you for coming back to Galaxy Brands. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. It's You haven't been on since um, we started video, so this is the first time. It's the maybe, first video. Yeah. You, I've always had a face for radio, but I... Uh, <laughs> you know, people say that we look similar when I actually shaved a little bit. Um, we got we got it a little bit. Well, yeah. it's because we typically our style matches. Yeah. Right, you know? So, Michael, yeah, you were last on. We had published a report about NFT licensing. Um, and you, you also talked about, I think at the time, this was maybe like a summer 2022 episode that we did. Um, and we talked about writer rips and some of the like legal issues around NFTs. We'll, we're going to get into that a little bit, but I want to talk about a couple other things about it. But first, um, you've got a pretty fascinating story uh, as you, how you got to working on crypto. You're a lawyer. You've worked in big law. You've done, what, t tell a little bit of that story. Yeah. I mean, so when I graduated law school, uh, I basically, I think there's a quote from Bill Clinton that said, like, he he walked out of law school running for office. And that's what I wanted to do. But I got some advice around the time that that's a terrible idea. <laughs> because, uh, and probably it's because the game has changed, right? When Bill Clinton was graduating law school, he was going to Arkansas and he was able to run a attorney general campaign and like a shoestring budget with no money. Yeah, I'm getting out of law school, have no money have no access to connections, you know, no connections, no access to capital. 
and you need that apparently, <laughs> as right. I learned yeah. um, running for office. So I uh, I did the big law thing. I worked at uh, 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 Kirkland and Ellis, a big uh, law yeah, firm. Yeah. Did uh, mergers and acquisitions there. Loved it. It was great. But then, like a couple years in, I got an opportunity to run for the New York State Assembly, yeah. and uh, and I took a leave of absence from Kirkland and I ran. This was this was round one. Should we get into this? I mean, do you want to? Do you want to get into? Kinda. It? It's it's kind of an interesting story. Tell the story. Yeah. So I immediately from, from my connections at K and E, um, and you know, just Friends being a lawyer. And, yeah. I raised over a hundred grand. Yeah. Out the gate. That's enough to get and, started for that race, right? Uh, that's for that a, a, lot? a New York State Assembly race. That's a lot. Yeah. And I was running against a twenty-year incumbent. Yeah. I was running as a Democrat. He was a Republican. And just a little something about New York State politics is if you're a Republican in the New York State Assembly, you are you have no power because they have almost a permanent majority in the assembly, right? right? And the assembly is the equivalent in New York State of the House of Representatives, yep. right? So it's just majoritarian, right? Yep. So I was going against this guy big time. This was 2018. I was I was railing against this guy for d just doing nothing, yep. right? Which Frankly, was his custom, right? He <laughs> he collected a paycheck, did almost nothing all the and time. And to your right? point, you're saying there wasn't much he could have done anyway. Even nothing he could have done anyway. You can't <laughs> even blame the guy, even though. But he, he didn't do anything. But he didn't do anything. Yeah. And there was real problems, right? There, like I was running on very local issues, right? I was running on like fixing potholes, right? Lowering taxes, fixing our like energy system on Long Island, which is won't get into, but it's a mess mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. Drop the hundred thousand dollar number that I, that I raised. He immediately sues me. Sues me. For what? I'm like, what is he suing me about <laughs> to kick me off the ballot? The claim that he made was that I was ineligible to run for office. Now, just some background about me. I have been a New Yorker my entire life. I was born in Huntington Hospital on Long Island. I've lived in New York my whole life. I did go to Duke Law School down in North Carolina. Oh, big Duke is puke. And <laughs> <laughs> Must have been what he thought. And, um, and as a student there... I voted on campus, yeah. which you have a right to do. There's a U.S. Supreme Court case, Sim v. the United States, that gives students a right to vote on campus. What does that mean, vote on campus? You mean you vote, vote like, for so, a statewide so, office or national office? So, like, office? I'm registered to vote in New York. And right? you could vote, do that vote at, at, a, at a voting polling center in on campus. Then I go to Duke, and they have all these people running around with, hey, register here. To vote. Yeah. So I do it, right? But you could have voted absentee back in New York. Could have. I of course. But you but, voted there. But but I'm there. We can vote on campus. I want to be part of the community, yeah. right? And you didn't also vote in both I places. I did not vote course. in New York. I only voted in New York. Yeah, of yeah. Course. Totally able to do that. So I graduate two years later, right? This was like my very first year of law. Yeah, yeah. And the New York State courts, highest court in the state, hands down a ruling which says that if you vote out of state for you know, the, the facts of that case were about an employee, but it was pretty general. If you vote out of state, you sever the five continuous years you need to be a resident of the state in order to run for so office. So they're claiming that you have to then come back, live in New York for, for five, five years, years before you can run for office. Well, the worst part about it was they never clarified in this case. When you sever, how long you—at what point do you reinitiate your, your residency, right? It's when you drive your busted uh, car back up from North Carolina and you cross over that bridge and, and like, uh, you know, the George—whatever the bridge is and from Jersey to New York. Yeah, what they didn't say was, well, you have to re-register to vote in New York because then that would, that would mean is that okay. only registered voters can run for office, which is actually not true. Right. right? So what they basically said is you severed it. 
So we don't know when the clock restarts, but it's, but it's gotta it, be five years from but, whenever it starts. But you're kicked off the ballot. Now right. there's a legal problem here, which is that by exercising one right, namely to vote on campus as codified by, you know, as promulgated by the U.S. Supreme Court, you were vitiating or undermining another right that you have, which is to run for office, right? Yeah. How can that be, yeah. right? So I, I lose. First, first round, boom. So you're off the ballot. I was stunned, right? <laughs> I'm sitting there in court. I'm just, this is like a localish court, right? This is like, local, this, you're not local, the New York Supreme Court. It's, called the, it's court actually called the Supreme Court, but it's the lowest court in New York State. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, and it's, they're different in every state. Stunned. I think in Massachusetts, what, the Superior Court, I think maybe is the, right. I can't remember, or the right. Supreme Judicial Court right. is the Supreme Court of right. Massachusetts. I forget. Stunned, right? I'm like, fuck this, I'm gonna appeal it. I appeal it to the intermediary court, right? Um, I hire a big time lawyer. We go all out. We have all of our arguments, right? Like, he's a student. There should be an exception for students voting on campus. It's obviously right? ridiculous. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? Um, incidentally, by the way, two other cases were going on at that time, both students. So they were using this new court decision to basically churn students off the ballot, right? It's crazy. I lose in the, uh, in the intermediate court. I appeal it to the Court of Appeals. Let's go. And I'm like, all right, I'm a lawyer. I know this case better than everyone. I'm going to argue it myself. Wow. So I go up. That doesn't surprise me at all. I did not know this. <laughs> I go up and I argue myself. And unfortunately, I had to argue for the right to actually argue. So I had to do two arguments. But they wouldn't even hear me. So they denied me on the first argument. So right? they wouldn't Namely, let you represent yourself. Well, not that they wouldn't or let me they, represent. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't let you be they, heard. Because they, they have discretion. They're like the U.S. Supreme Court, right? Yeah. They have discretion as to what they, what cases. And I argued, you know, this is a actually very important case because, like, this is happening to two other people. Yeah. Right? So I get kicked off, right? Devastated, right? Because this is 2018. It's the blue wave. My, my, my opponent is so worried about me that, that, he's he, done that this, this yeah. is the only thing he's you got. think he's right? vulnerable, yeah. But not only that, I felt a massive injustice, right? Like, yeah, of I course. did all the right things, right? I went to law school. I voted on campus like they tell you to do, right? They didn't even, they didn't, by the way, I, when, I, when I voted at the time, this rule wasn't in effect. So they retroactively applied it to me, right? So fast forward real quick. I run again in 2020 because two months after the guy kicked me off the ballot, two months, he's like, you know what? I'm retired. <laughs> Oh he quits. Oh he God. quits in the middle of his term. So, so I'm like, all right, throw my hat in the ring again. 2020. But this time it's an open seat. Yeah. So it's a special election. Maybe like you versus other Democrats, most likely. Uh, yeah, because yeah. it's an open seat. Well, it was it was first I had to win the primary. Yeah. And if I won the primary, I was all but a shoe in to win the general, or, or because the general was a special election. And because Democrats controlled the state, they put it on the same day as the Democratic presidential primary, <laughs> 2020. Right. Brilliant. Yep. So I'm like. I got to win this primary. Went all out. Ran against a couple Democrats, right? Very established guys. I won by 86% of the vote in the primary. Wow. I was like, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Yeah. I was like, this is it. This is my chance. Two weeks later, COVID. Oh, no. So I left my job at the, uh, during this race. I go all in on this race. COVID happens, and they cancel the special election. So they didn't fill the seat? Because of COVID. Did not fill the seat until the general election. <laughs> So they canceled it. Oh, By the way, no. in that election also, they sued me again, twice, for the residency thing. Again, I won those. Yeah. By the way, during 2020, uh, same case comes up. Upper East Side kid. Uh -huh. uh, he 
has the exact same facts. Actually, his facts are worse because he graduated from Yale the year before and voted in Connecticut the year before. Right? It's arguable. So it's an even earlier even retroactive earlier, application right? of it, yeah. But he wins. How does he win? What, was it something that I did wrong? No. He was in a different court relative to me. And also, he is the son or grandson of a billionaire, right? That helps. And that's, I mean, that that's all I needed to learn about New York State law, you know, <laughs> New York State courts, right? And just how justice is done in New York. So, like, I was really focused on that issue for a while. Like, like it's it's pretty bad if young people can't get into politics. Makes sense. Right. Well, especially in our politics today, we need more young people. So, anyway, during that period, I was like, all of a sudden, it's 2020, crypto's ripping it's again. super interesting in I crypto. was all, I was, oh, I was, I was bullish on crypto since 2014 yeah. when I was in law school and I learned about smart contracts. And as a lawyer or a soon-to-be lawyer in, in, in law school, I was like, well, That's if, interesting. Yeah. If, wait, wait, hold on. If you're saying to me there's this new technology out there, it's about contracts, right? I was like, I got to get into that, right? Right. right? Little did I know that smart contracts have almost very little to do with actual contracts. We're going to get so, into that. Right, right, right. But, um, yeah, so, and then obviously, you know, after, after that uh, 2020, you know, I, I went back to practicing law for a little bit and then I was like, Wow, there's an opportunity at Galaxy work at Galaxy. Yeah. And I, I came to Galaxy. All right. Let's run the clip of, uh, Michael, you showed me a clip of you campaigning during uh, that election. I just think it gets some good context. We'll roll that clip now. The theft of our money taken from this community and given to bondholders that don't live here, that don't care about us, right. that don't know us, that could care less if the power plant was in a desert or in a thriving middle-class community. But we need people to stand up. We need people to fight. We don't need more people to go up to Albany and make friends with people and get into the system. We need people who are gonna go up there and are going to raise hell for you. Okay, so Michael, uh, it's a fascinating story. I think I just it doesn't surprise me in the least. I'm happy you came to Galaxy. Now let's talk about we got a couple specific issues that you and I have been talking about for years at this point. Let's start with NFTs, but I'll, I'll lay it out for the audience. We really want to talk about NFTs and tokenization, DAOs, um, and we want to talk about bankruptcies. There have been a lot, and as an MA, former MA lawyer mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, crypto lawyer in general, you've got some interesting takes. Always, most, an, M always an MA lawyer. Always, always I guess yeah, once yeah. always. I don't yeah. know. Uh, but let's talk about NFTs. Yeah. We we wrote a report together along with my colleague Gabe Parker uh, about NFT licenses. We called it NFT licenses, facts and fictions. In fact, if you search, if you Google. NFT licenses, it's still about the second or third hit that comes up. So that, that report has done numbers. Nice, nice. The thing we pretty much argued in that paper was that, and this is from completing a survey of the IP licensing agreements or clauses included with many major NFT projects, mostly PFP projects, uh, we argued that the vast majority of them actually convey no, no tangible rights at all to their holders and that there was a spectrum of marketing from these companies with, you know, some being relatively benign or even point blank saying, look, you're really not getting anything, but use it. We're not going to sue you if you use it since you bought it. But like yep. technically we could Yep. as on the, on the benign side. And then on the sort of predatory side, some even legally, uh, literally claiming that you did own that when you bought the NFT, you got the legal IP ownership, yep. but that you actually didn't. Right. Yep. So the spectrum, first of all, do you, do you still believe that we need tangible ownership IP? Like, is it somewhat, some of the pushback that we got on that report was like, well, dude, like, you know, when you buy the you know, Mona Lisa, like Da Vinci still holds the IP. 
he's giving you the physical thing, but he's not selling all the future and IP rights to the. Mm -hmm. um, but do we still need that? And and have we made any progress there that you're aware of? So we definitely still need it. Um, yeah, the the inspiration behind that paper was uh, that either one or two things were happening. Either it was a giant missed opportunity that we were seeing right in the market where honest, you know, good faith actors that were issuing these projects were just failing to actually convey the IP rights that they claim they were doing right. to we their We only found, I think, one, what right? is it, World of Women, I yeah, think, World was the Women. one project yep. at yep. the time we found that yep. actually did have a pretty decent, yep. durable, yep. certainly a, an earnest and uh, an earnest attempt at yep. conveying them, yep. but actually a, a decent structure to yeah. try to do it. It still had issues, though. Either It was either that or they were just basically defrauding their their customers right saying they're, that they're saying that they're conveying these rights when they weren't because and you could prove potentially that they weren't because they actually issued terms of service that cl clearly state that you didn't own the anyway. the actual underlying IP and and the, the the missed opportunity if they were being honest actors from my perspective was unlike almost every other structure you can think of in the NFT context this the the smart contract design is actually perfectly suited to actually convey rights in a way that no other structure to my knowledge is, right? So if you, so my idea at the time was like, if you just simply embed into the smart contract an actual contract, right? right. The text of one, right. I mean, yeah. And, and, and the contract could say something along the lines of like, whoever holds this NFT, this contract binds, right? Right. In which case, by virtue of transferring the NFT, you transfer the contract. Because the NFT is always linked to the smart contract, you always have privity with that original smart contract in a way that if you did it in a Web 2 version, right, the original issuer of the contract would no longer have contractual privity, which just means a link between the original and the and right. the resale, right? You you sever that link, right? So if, for example, if I sell you the Mona Lisa, right, yeah. and you sell it to Chris, right? Mm -hmm. I can't sue Chris for things because I no longer am in under contract because I am no longer in contractual privity with Chris, right? Chris but doesn't if, even know you. Yeah. But if I'm a smart contract, right, I'm always in contractual privity with the token holder because it derives from that smart contract, right? And because it references the smart contract, right? And so there's really unique properties that NFTs have. However, in any in any event, World of Women wasn't doing that, unfortunately. They, they had a different attempt. I mean, they, it, it was yeah. an attempt. It was a good attempt. Yeah. Um, but theirs was a Web two attempt, right? Yeah. And I hope. And listen, I haven't checked World of Women in a while, so maybe same. It's I don't know either. But 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 like, they could easily just take that terms of service, put in the smart contract, right? And voila, you've got something there. But most other projects weren't doing it, right? Right. And this is a massive missed opportunity for another reason, which is like, IP rights that are freely tradable is a massive market right. that should be tapped into by NFT projects, by and the crypto community. It seems like this technology is so powerful, particularly for tracking ownership. Right. Right. And right. so it, this is something, let's go back to what we were talking about when you were in college and you found yep. out about smart contracts, because yep. this is directly yep. related. And when I hear you describe what could be done for, you know, these classic um, PFPs or art NFT projects. It sounds a lot like it could have power in other industries. And For sure. this is typically what people in the blockchain industry call tokenization. Yes. Right? I mean, is this, these constructs should, if I can transfer the ownership, if the token holder is the 
the contract binds the owner of the token. Mm -hmm. And then if the token moves, now the contract moves with it. Mm -hmm. Does that have other applications for tokenizing property, real estate, equities, bonds, yes. other interests, IP, right? One of the biggest issues with our financial markets right now, if you had to look at one really giant inefficiency, is actually like property rights, right? So property rights are typically not freely tradable, right? It, with the exception of if you can subsume the right under some sort of security, right? Excluding that, you really, there's no freely tradable market for IP rights. There's no freely tradable market for your deed to your house, right? There's no freely tradable market for your your ownership of your car, Not right? that easy. You got to go to, you know, like auto trader right. or whatever. I mean, even the commodification of ideas, right, which you could, you could throw under IP, right? There's a whole host of different, uh, there's a giant spectrum of things that could be tokenized if more efficiently, right? Like let's let's take one thing that I've been really focused on lately in the tokenization space, which is like retail borrowing, right? So, so there was recently some news about how someone um, issued a smart contract through a, a pr protocol. I can't remember the name of the protocol, and and the collateral for the uh, uh, for the so they borrowed money from the public markets, uh, secured by their Patek Philippe watch. Yeah, right? I saw this. So yeah. they sent the Patek Philippe watch to this um, protocol, protocol, whoever it is. Guys, they have, they maybe have look, a, look they it have up a if you want to. Custodian or something. Um, and they verify that it's real. And then what, what do they do? They issue a smart contract to the market, to the global market, right? And people will fund that contract and compete to fund that contract, thereby making rates as competitive as possible for that, uh, right. that issue. Now, the evidence that one would get from funding that contract should be an NFT, right? Because it's, 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 it's not really that, I mean, you could do it with fungible tokens, but it's not that clean, right? Yeah. NFT is the proper vehicle for that, right? That is uh, evidencing your entitlement to a payment stream from that smart contract in perpetuity. You can freely trade it, right? And the best thing about this is it effectively creates like a global pawn shop, if you will, right? Like, because it's not just the contract, which is in the NFT, yeah. but it's also the actual infrastructure mechanism yes. through which to get the yes. income stream. Or if you, uh, even if you're an LP in like a, an AMM pool, yes. it's the the token literally that lets you redeem your yes. assets. So it, it signifies your ownership, but it is also the key Correct. to in, to effecting the contract's Correct. terms. And the By the way, it was called, it was a $35,000 loan from a DeFi protocol called Arcade. Arcade. Um, and it was collateralized with the Patek Philippe watch. So what, if you are- They use an escrow company to securely store the physical watch. Right. So if you think about this like this, if you are just a, a general, you know, retail, you know, person, right? Just, you're not an institution. You're not money bags by any means. You just got some things lying around the house and you need money. How do you borrow in America today, right? Know, from the bank, from the credit card primarily. But if you don't have like any, like if you don't have the right assets, right? right? If you've got, if you got, if you got, yeah. got $20,000, you know, uh, red October Yeezys, Right? You're not borrowing anything against yeah, them. Yeah, you right? can't take those down to your local right. Wells Fargo. Unless you go to the pawn shop, right? And the pawn shop suffers from a lack of a market, right? right? You're not, you're getting screwed. You don't get competition. You're getting There's screwed. no transparency. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, but you're not getting screwed necessarily because the pawn shop's some shady outfit. It's just there's no market, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like, 
it's a really uh, pre- it, it be- has become predatory, but it's only predatory because there's no market. Yeah, and it's too expensive to make a market, right? Except this is the beautiful thing about crypto. It's not that expensive to fork a contract, right? And make a global market and make a global market. It's fascinating. Right? And I think that is going to be a future big area. Yeah. Right? So you're going to have like a you're going to have like a warehouse somewhere that is it's literally there's the physical security yep. of the collateral. Yep. And and then you're going to have a web site that's literally like, do you want to buy this collateral? Or yep. this collateral was defaulted on, so now it's for sale from the pawn shop. Yep. The, the Yeezys or whatever they are sitting in the warehouse. Yep. So like if you buy it on this website from the protocol, yep. they'll be shipped to you. But yep. if not, they're securely stored there and that's where they are and you can borrow. Yeah, yeah. Step one is I, I send my Yeezys to this company, Arcade, let's say, right? They verify the authenticity. They, they value it, right? Then they issue a smart contract to the market and they say, Fund this smart contract, and this smart contract will pay you every month or every quarter a certain amount of interest, right? I see. And then after X amount of months, years, whatever, the the borrower will repay the principal mm-hmm. and um, then get their easies back, yeah. right? Like, that's a giant market, right? Yeah, you're right. It's a giant – you know, one reason why retail loves collectibles, whether it's just like a board ape or whether it's a baseball card, is because stuff they can understand, right? But unfortunately, we don't have sophisticated markets for those types of things, Yeah. right? So – That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move yeah. on. Uh, I, I also want to talk to you, Michael, about DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Yep. We've talked a lot about this. Um, this, uh, this is a, a legal – concept or at least a governance concept yep. i should say they i had said once that they're the vast majority of them i don't want to necessarily paint them all with the same brush but they weren't decentralized or enough they weren't autonomous really at all none of them really um and but what i've learned recently <laughs> and we've been talking about for like at least the last year and a half they're not effectively organizations well they actually are but tell me about what how most DAOs are being thought about legally as organizations today. So the most important decision, and and we have to do a better job as like, you know, leaders in this space of making this known to people, right? The number one question that the founders of a DAO should be asking themselves is, do we incorporate this DAO somewhere, right? Now, there is a tension here, and I'm, I'll recognize the tension. And there's a lot of really smart people in the industry that say, don't incorporate, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason they say that is because it's almost a catch-22 that a regulatory system is set up. The catch-22 is, if you incorporate, you have a liability shield. And I'll explain what that is in a second. But you, good. you have a liability shield. Good. Yeah. But now you have a centralization vector right. on which securities uh, uh, regulators or other regular law or other regulators can say you're not centralized by definition you're not you're not decentralized you're not decentralized by definition because you have an LLC in nowhere right on the other hand they say well let's not actually and I've had these conversations with like really smart lawyers who are GCs of crypto projects right yeah and I'm like you gotta you gotta uh, you have to incorporate and what they say is no because then we risk of, you know, being claimed that we're not decentralized, right? Right. And so on the other hand, what they say is we're not going to incorporate and we're going to hang our hat on this this kind of, frankly, 
it's not a clear standard at all in the law as to whether or not if you are sufficiently decentralized, you are therefore outside of right. the ambit of the securities laws, right? So, but what okay. has happened when many, well, there's been a few cases where that the downside of not incorporating has exposed itself. Yes. So there's one, I think, in particular, UkiDAO, yes. the CFTC case against yes. UkiDAO. So what, what happens sometimes if you don't have that liability shield? So, so How are they being considered? So if you are a holder of tokens in a DAO, right, which for all intents and purposes— So governance tokens. Governance tokens, You can tokens, vote on right? a proposal. So you own uni tokens. You own comp tokens, right? right? You own, you know, right. the list is, you know, you own ape tokens, right? They have one, ape DAO. Um, and that DAO to which your tokens are linked is not incorporated— under the ruling in Ukidao, every single token holder, whether or not they participated in any governance votes at all, right. is a member of what they call a general partnership, right? And a general partnership doesn't have the protections under the law that are afforded to LLCs or corporations, namely liability shield. Now, what's a li why, why form a corporation at all, right? Like, people might not know this. Like, why form a corporation at all? It's not just because that's the thing to do, right? <laughs> it, it's because forming a corporation gives you a shield against liability. You it's, personally. You personally, right. as an investor, as an owner. As an operator. As an operator, As a right? CEO, yeah. It, so what that means is, you, you know, like— You the, create a new legal person. Yes. Right? That can go out in the world, and if the corporation makes a mistake— or is sued or becomes legally liable. Right. It's on the corporation as an entity, not, there's no pass through. In some, in most cases, there's somewhat of a shield preventing a penetration of the corporate veil, they say. Corporations are people, my friend. Exactly, well, yeah. that's the idea though, yeah. because if you and I do business and um, our company does, let's say it's relatively benign, but like yeah. a contractual dispute with right. a vendor, right? right? The, we want the vendor to sue the corporation, yeah. right. not right. like my personal, Right. Well, so you right. know, me and my family, right? That's the idea. So this was actually a really huge controversy over 100 years ago. So over 100 years ago, businesses, they didn't have this concept of corporations, right? And it was a huge issue because you had all these rich people pooling their money together. And then the, the question was when the entity that they pulled their money in did something wrong, who do you sue? Which right? one of the rich people, all of the rich people, whomever. And so states that were wanted that business, they developed laws that said, Corporation is a separate legal entity. You can sue the corporation, but you can't go after the individual shareholders, right? right. And that is a core principle of our corporate law uh, today, of, and right? Of capitalism, of capitalism generally, right? We would not. No one would do business. You wouldn't right? form capital at scale, never, if merely investing in something made you liable for what it did. Except that's happening right now in crypto. Correct. Right? In DAOs. So, so you are a member of a DAO. You don't even know this, but you could be liable. What they call jointly and severally liable, which means— It's even worse than just being liable. It's even worse, which means you yourself can be sued for some or all of the liability attached to the entity. Right? Literally, so if—let's say we have a—let's say there's two of us. Yep. We're, we're the DAO token holders or the shareholders yep. in the DAO, um, and the DAO is sued for being illegal in yep. some way. Yep. And you— you get on the starship with Elon and go yep. to Mars and yep. you're, they can't find you. Yep. But they find me. Yep. They don't charge me with half of it because yep. I was one of two. Yep. I get charged with the whole thing. You could get charged with the whole and thing. And that could yep. be 99 of the 100 get yep. on the starship with Elon yep. to Mars and one 
gets is held liable for yep. the whole thing. That's yep. joint and severally liable. You could be in a DAO with 100,000 other folks, but you're the richest guy. They they're suing you. you. Yeah. Right? So this has a really bad effect, which is that when they're sued, as is the case with the Uki DAO, and they say, all right, someone defend it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Nobody stands up, right? Nobody comes forward to defend the DAO because they're thereby outing themselves as one of the members of the DAO. And, and now they're making themselves obviously liable. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're going to develop bad law because what happened with Ukidao was they went to court. No one defended Ukidao, right? There were no arguments made in favor of Ukidao. There were only, I think there were some amicus briefs. Right, some amicus briefs. Yep, yep, again, that's yep. not a defense. That's not, just, dear not, judge, here's yep. how you should think about it. Exactly. And then there's a default judgment. Right. Which basically says no one came to defend. We win. By definition, CFTC wins, right? Yeah. That is a huge problem. That needs to be solved. And I would argue that merely incorporating as a DAO is not sufficient to vitiate or undermine your decentralization claim, right? So you can still retain the status of being a decentralized protocol while offloading certain responsibilities, ministerial responsibilities, right, to certain actors. So for example, if you have a DAO and you hire a law firm, the like DAO hires a law firm, right? The law firm is not like all of a sudden like responsible for the DAO. The, law, the DAO is not all of a sudden centralized because they've got a centralized law firm, right? That is a is an example of a of a minister, if you will, representing the DAO. Same with corporation, right? And what's cool about the Wyoming DAO law is that the Wyoming DAO law says that actually the code can take precedence, the rules of the of the DAO in, encoded on chain. Those rules can be then they can take precedence over the LLC rules, right? Such that the incorporators can't you know, secretly ch change all the rules of the of the LLC without anyone voting on it. And next thing you know, the DAO is- uh, It is run by the exactly, lawyers or something, right? yeah. So I would argue that this has got to be something that those that are running DAOs need to fix. They need to incorporate because if they have any hope of attracting serious capital, right? And by the way, here's the other thing, not just about the liability, but DAOs are actually a vehicle through which a tremendous amount of innovation can be spawned, mm. right? We, these are, these could be seen as laboratories for innovations on governance, right? Think about this for a second. What doesn't ever get innovated on, right? Like it's governance, right? Political governance, when was the last time we had an amendment to the constitution, right? It's, uh, it's 70s, impossible 70s, to do, maybe. right? Um, it, it, corporate governance, very difficult to do, right? With DAOs, they could be laboratories for innovative governance structures that can actually be more efficient, aggregate capital better, protect the rights of holders better, and over time, if they're successful, actually migrate into the general economy such that they could actually influence corporations, right? The corporations could adopt those policies. Mm -hmm. the, the last thing I want to say about this is that a DAO actually, there's, there's a world in which DAOs actually overtake corporations one day, right? If they do the right things, right? Because one way they cannot overtake corporations is it's like, all right, on one hand, you got a corporation in which all the shareholders are, are protected <laughs> with the liability shield. Sounds pretty good. On the other hand, you got a DAO in which every single shareholder is jointly and severally liable. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> that won't get you. That, that, that ain't going anywhere, right? It's not gonna attract institutions. It's not gonna attract significant capital, right? And the only reason why anyone with any means would join it is because they didn't know about yeah. this, this quirk. But if they get that right, I mean, I remember 
uh, we were speaking with the founder of Compound, right? And he said something to me that stuck with me, which was like uh, Robert Leshner, right? Yeah. Um, he, he said something that was, I thought was just, like, I was like, this is how we, I know we're going to win one day, right? Which is like compounds, like, he, I think he analogizes to BlockFi, right? He said something like, um, and I, I, don't quote me on this, but it was like BlockFi or some other centralized lending protocol, uh, lending company, mm -hmm. their expenses were through the roof, right? I remember this. Right? Compliance yeah. and, and uh, liquidation levels and, and all the risk management stuff. Yeah. And, and just like- As it needs to be. It's just like paperwork after paperwork after like keeping the lights on, right? Like right. everything. The expenses for compound, zero, right? Like zero. I mean, that, so that advantage is like the only thing that could undercut that advantage is this liability issue, right? Yeah. That we need to fix on DAOs. And there are interesting things, you know, a lot of people have, um, you know, humorously or criticized or observed that crypto development and, and innovation is speed running various like things. For, take DeFi, for example. Yep. You know, one thing that is exciting about DeFi is if you think about Bitcoin as putting the creation and design of money in the hands of open source developers and, and open source software development can yield enormous innovation. Mm -hmm. and, and it has, right? Yep. And it did with Bitcoin for sure. But that, okay, well, what if we put finance and financial engineering in the hands of open source development communities? That's the innovation that you get from DeFi. And sometimes it's humorous. Sometimes you get things created by these developers and, and that are globally distributed, you know, random people that yep. build on these projects. You know, that, for example, like, they seem innovative, but, like, they weren't actually created, like, years ago. And these people didn't even know. They don't yep. come from Wall Street. Yep. They don't know yep. the... Yep. Um, but also you get things no one's ever thought of, right? And yep. and the, I think maybe the hope would be that similarly on governance, if we were to open up a laboratory for governance innovation to the open source world, then you could maybe get innovations no one's ever thought of. And But you do face problems that people have solved in the real world. And the challenge to your point is to bring those and those those solutions yep. to very important problems right. and have and figure out how to incorporate those right. and build on the new stuff. Um, it, it does seem like a really interesting opportunity. We, we've seen, we've seen some, I mean, to be clear, the laboratory, it's happening. Oh yeah. Some of them do incorporate some of them. I mean, I think about compounds, a good example. Like a lot of people use compounds governance model. Yep. Uh, Maker has a very elaborate, I, I would argue per personally a little too complex, but nonetheless fascinating and elaborate governance model. Yep. Um, there are others as well. Aragon back in the day was yep. going to do decentralized courts yep. and arbitration. Yep. yep. Um, and, and, and yeah. the, the, the vanguard of all this is often going to get a lot of a lot of slack. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to fail. A lot of them are going to fail, right? But the beauty of crypto and why I'm in this industry is that the failures are open source, and so you can take that code, right, and you can then fix those problems, right? Yeah. And the scale and speed of innovation is rapid because you don't need to fund a hundred million dollar R and D trust in order to to develop a smart contract because you can just pull it right directly. And, and that also has the interesting property of being something that can actually be uh, reviewed, that has the transparency, right? Mm -hmm. So what you don't hear about, let's just on DeFi for a second, what you don't hear about that often these days, and I think there was a re recent report that kind of confirmed this, you, in 2022, 2021, every week you heard about an exploit yeah. protocol, right? Every single... Exploit here, exploit there. You don't hear about them that often anymore, right? There have been a, I would say, decline. We, we've seen them in other aspects, but DeFi hasn't been as bad. And the reason, though, is because they've improved the tech, right? The smart contracts are better, right? And they will continue to be better. And so there's this is an interesting model, right? The, the model is 
the f true free market, right? We throw the code out there. If you're an investor in that protocol, if you hold your funds on that protocol, you might get wrecked. And right? you should look at it. Right. But you have every single person that has the skills and the know-how to exploit it, able to exploit it. And if they do exploit it, then you're going to fix it. The whole world in real time. It's like a real-time bug bounty. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's more – it's faster. It's more efficient and yes. it's easier to learn from. I think you will get better Code. You'll get better code from yeah. that process than the alternative process, which is well, heavily. You know, th this is absolutely. This is a long-term argument that's been made for decades yeah. at this point about open source software right. in general. Right. That it is more secure because everyone can work on it exactly. and everyone can try to penetrate it. Bitcoin's a great example too. It's the, the theoretically the largest bug bounty on the in the world. Hundred percent. If you can right now, I challenge anyone go out and try to crack Bitcoin's <laughs> yeah. blockchain. All right. Yep. yep. Uh, it's not scary for me to say that because I literally know thousands of people have and right. are trying to do it. Well, this is another thing about like Ethereum generally, right? So um, there is a debate right now about whether or not certain things on Ethereum sh um, are leading to centralization of Ethereum. Sure. Right. So my view on this is like. We should let those things try to centralize it. And if it does, we can fix those things rather than what is currently happening, which is a, a, a vocal, uh, I'd say minority, but a vocal group is trying to enforce like almost cultural norms, yeah. right? Like cultural norms are the not social gonna, layer, right? There's a social layer to it, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like th you hear this all the time from businesses, right? They're like, oh, well, we could do that. But like we are we are committed to to neutrality. You know, uh, uh, we're uh, committed to, you know, uh, uh, decentralization. It's like, dude, try to do it. If it's successful, you'll make a lot of money trying to centralize it. And if the if the protocol is that easily centralizable. Then it was. Then there's a mistake in it that we need to fix, yeah. right? We're not because because eventually someone's going to come along that is not going to have those sort of. Uh, well, you know, this is an argument that uh, I've heard a lot. It's not just Ethereum focused, right? People are actually making this argument right now on Bitcoin. There's a faction that thinks that inscriptions and ordinals are literally spam, mm -hmm. um, and there's a variety of things. But one of the things they want to do is add uh, better mempool filtering to Bitcoin Core. Mm -hmm. So you can filter as much as you want in a mempool. Things will still probably get in on chain in general, um, but if it were added to core, then it would be it would be meaningfully more difficult. What is the uh, issue with the filtering? What, what, well, the you... issue primarily is that you end up with what happened on Ethereum, which is private mempools. Mm. Eventually, I mean, if the monetary incentive is there to get something on chain, they don't they won't go through the public mempool, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of I mean, the public mempool on Ethereum is you know not fully dead. Actually, you were showing me last week, but but it's it's been significantly harmed, right? It's hard to you can't only now look at the public mempool on Ethereum. Ethereum and get a good sense of the activity because there's right. all these other private locations right. and and that's a public good that I think until it's lost should be protected. If it's lost, then you do things to mitigate and whatnot and, and that's Ethereum right. spent a lot of work on that. But one of the counters to this idea of filtering is that guys, if the Bitcoin blockchain can't handle some monkey JPEGs, like mm -hmm. haven't we failed already? Yes, 100%. Right? And by the way, it yeah. certainly can handle it. People just don't like that Fees have gone up a bit in, in certain times. Isn't, aren't fees but that's good one of the for, arguments. It's for, a, for well, they miners? are, but they might not be good for the social layer of how they want to use Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, but I mean, it's a similar conversation, right? right? Because the idea is like, guys, if there's a problem that if it really is so damaging to Bitcoin, we should know it right now. Right. Because like, I'm pretty sure like if a, a government or an alien civilization wants to take down Bitcoin, all they have to do is spam it with some monkey JPEGs, right, like right. then it really wasn't like yeah. that good to begin yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. So a similar argument. 100%. And like the, the, the main question is like, if Ethereum is committed to decentralization, the question has to be why, right? And there's some really good arguments for why, right? Yeah. Uh, censorship resistance, transparency, right? Democratization, right? But 
The only way those things are actually going to be real is if the protocol design enables them, right? right. You're not going to be able to enforce de decentralization through social norms, right? So, like, actually, people who are trying to centralize the network, right, are actually doing the, the network a service. They're like white hat hackers. Exactly, right? <laughs> it's exactly like the ex exploits for, for protocols, right? There will be new things that are developed, right? So, like, for example, the L2s, right, the sequencers are typically centralized, right? That is a problem um, for a lot of reasons, right? But it also creates enormous efficiency in other in other respects, right? And so uh, the question really becomes, like, if you're going to decentralize your sequencer, what are the trade-offs and how are you best going to make sure that a decentralized sequencer maintains the efficiency while also maximizes the uh, – the security, the, the, the decentralization. Security, exactly. right. All right, let's do another topic, bankruptcies. There were a lot in crypto, obviously, and they were, it was bloody, right? There, there were huge companies, at least inside crypto. FTX, like the most iconic and, and sort of, I don't know if it was by numbers the biggest blow, but it was certainly huge. And its bankruptcy filing that Friday in November effectively marked the bottom in this market or caused the bottom. You know, you've looked at a lot of these, you know, you know lawyers in, in bankruptcy space and, and, and you're in crypto, you follow them. Was there anything about these bankruptcies that was different than other bankruptcies by virtue of the fact that they involved crypto companies as opposed to, say, other types of companies? Two things. First is the asset class, right? Crypto being the primary value that these estates own, right. uh, have a claim to, and the creditors are claiming that they have a claim to. That is very unique. The more unique thing, frankly, and the very interesting dynamic was the creditor class for these estates. So typically with big bankruptcies, you've got a lot of extremely sophisticated creditors, many of whom are secured creditors, which means that the amounts that the estate owes them, they have a stronger claim to by virtue of marking certain of the collateral or the assets that the estate owns marking it as theirs, mm -hmm. right? Um, you also have, though, like, bondholders in a lot of these bankruptcies, right? Like, and they form a, a, an ad hoc committee of bondholders, right? Yeah. These are very sophisticated guys, right? Um, in crypto, it was a creditor class of just retail. Almost exclusively, right? Giant mass of retail, yeah. right? You're, we're talking, like, let's just take Celsius, for example. Celsius, I think, like, 90% or more of the creditors in Celsius were retail. Unsecured right? Unsecured retail. Right, so yeah. what this means is <laughs> the dynamic for the estate was such that, one, they had a ton of capital. Like, they had a ton of assets to distribute. It's a giant pile of retail users' assets. Yeah. And two, they had no uh, real burden to distribute them quickly. Because right. there was no, because they were all unsecured. Exactly. And and there was a lack of like very sophisticated, even among the unsecured creditors, right. there would often be, right. I don't know what, private equity, ARB, ARB funds, oh, who yeah. knows what, a whole, so whose interest would align with the, the retail unsecured. Right. But most of these didn't have that. Right. If you are sitting on billions of dollars of, of, of creditor funds, right, and they're all unsecured creditors, for the most part, you can take, and we've seen this in many respects, you can take your sweet time with distributing this, right? Figure it out, right? Yeah. Um, which prolonged the, these processes. The other thing that was unique is that because they're unsecured creditors and they are retail, the unsecured creditors committees, which is to say, for, for those that, that don't know, these are the committees that are basically like the board of directors for creditors, right? They're like the representatives for creditors, okay? They are the voice for creditors. 
they're made up with a bunch of retail as well, right? Like on Celsius, the, the UCC was all retail, right? Like these are guys that like mine Bitcoin in their backyard, like, and mined a lot of it and then deposited it into Celsius, right? These, we're not talking about like Goldman Sachs is on the creditors list, right? right. And as a result, you've got retail leading retail. And on the other side of that is the estate. And so the estate is armed with one, a ton of resources. And what the, what's the first thing the estate does in every bankruptcy? I don't know, hire a bunch of lawyers? Hire a bunch of lawyers, right? <laughs> yeah. And they've got a ton of money yeah. to hire a bunch of lawyers. Right. And they hire the best, the most expensive, right? Then what's the next thing they do? They hire uh, bankers. Right. And then they hire financial advisors. And then they hire auditors. And then they hire all these advisors, right? All right, before we wrap, Michael, just your long-term, this has been great. I, I love getting the perspective of somebody with your legal mind and, 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 and intellectual interest uh, in the space and some of the nuances of this this thing because um, very few people, I think, deal with the, 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 I mean, especially we start talking about bankruptcy, contract law, legal governance issues, right? These seem very niche, but I find them quite interesting. But what is your, we've, talked, we've hinted on some of these throughout, particularly around tokenization, contracts. Right. Uh, organization, what's your long-term vision for the impact of blockchains as somebody who's come from the legal world? As, are we ever going to see or why hasn't yet any of the legal industry really been obviated yet by these so-called smart contracts? So the, the future in my mind, and I'm you know, as certain of this as I can be, but this is obviously an article of faith, is one day all securities will be on-chain, right? So every security you own will be an NFT, right? And it will be traded on a blockchain. Now, whether that's a permission blockchain or not, uh, regulations will probably force it to be permission, but that alone will be a massive innovation, right? So you will have a system. Let, let's do a model transaction, right? You buy a company. The company, it's equity that you're buying because when you typically when you buy a company, you're doing a, a share purchase agreement where you're buying the equity, right? The equity that it's issued historically has been in NFTs, right? So they're on chain, right? So the actual merger agreement or the share purchase agreement will be a smart contract on chain, right? And the, the transaction will consist of the purchaser Funding the smart contract with USDC, let's say, right? And maybe, let's say, if it's a mixed consideration, right? They, they, they're funding part, part stock, which, they, which are also NFTs, right? Um, and by the way, these NFTs, like, just to be clear, these are like the most boring NFTs. They could be cool, actually. I mean, but you like, could put an image, too, but we're talking yeah, about they're literally just text. Yeah, like, just like, there's a stock certificate. And then in the code the is, yeah. like, is like the actual... How, how it can exactly, be transferred right, and when right. and under, yeah. So you the, so you you fund let's say fifty percent USDC, fifty percent your own stock. You put that into this smart contract. The smart contract is a legal agreement, and it's like an escrow too, right? And it's an escrow. Yeah. By the way, as an M and A lawyer, dealing with escrow is a giant pain in the ass. This would be much simpler. I mean, they, I, I'm surprised that they just haven't started doing escrow to escrow stuff. Well, I guess you need you got the cash, you got the stable coins or the Bitcoin or the ETH already, but you don't have the other leg yet. Right. As right. soon as you do, right. the escrow on chain will right. be right. massive. So then. The smart contract will take the actual securities from the the target company that is being acquired and swap, Yeah. right? There goes your transaction expenses, gone, right? Transfer agent, gone, right? Um, escrow agent, gone. Title Pay, insurance. Payment agent, gone, right? Yeah. Um, you simplify it massively. You also do something that's interesting, which is like you actually have like – standardization in contracts, right? One of the things that is like lawyer's bread and butter, and for a good reason, is that M&A agreements are very bespoke, right? You can't really get a standard form. So it's right? not like NVCA, like deal docs not or something really. for a venture deal. Not really, but you probably could, 
frankly, right? <laughs> you probably could. The, the one limit here is that like, do we want our private company acquisition agreement to be on chain that everyone can see, right? So there needs to be some privacy stuff that, that, that and we, we could talk about that, but everything, if all securities should be traded on chain, all instruments should be traded on chain, chains will get more innovative, they will get faster, and the entities today that are building for that future, right? If you're trading on chain today, right? You, it is a radically different system. You can't just, you could port over your equities strategy to Binance or to Coinbase and just press go. And it's basically gonna trade crypto exactly the same way, right? You can just one for one. You can't do that on Uniswap, right? You can't do that on chain. It's a radically different system. And those companies that prepare for that system um, prepare for the future in which Larry Fink says the future is going to be tokenization, right? Everything's going to be tokenized. Everything's going to be on chain. They are going to be, I think, the real winners in, in the future. I, I hope so, at least. But I, that's my hope for crypto. And frankly, the only reason you asked earlier, like, why hasn't this happened yet? Why haven't lawyers, like, why haven't smart contracts obviated like regular contracts yet, right? The same question could be asked for why haven't why haven't tokens uh, or NFTs or even obviated securities, right? It's regulation, yeah. right? Regulators have to catch up with this, right? And the only way it's going to happen, and it is happening right now slowly, but the only way it's going to happen is that the industry, the not the crypto industry, like the industry, right? Like Wall Street sees the massive innovations that can take place and and – and says, okay, we're going to adopt this. Either that or crypto industry keeps plugging forward and we just – we develop stuff that is just so obviously more efficient that it's it, it needs to be chosen, right? And like the first deal I did – last thing. The first deal I did – one of the first deals I did um, was like a early stage like venture deal in, in crypto. And it was very – it was small, maybe like $5 million check or something, right? But they just paid with USDC. Yeah. Right? It was cross-border. No wires. Sent USDC. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap. This is amazing. <laughs> this is this is so obviously the right move, right? Like payments, right? The future of crypto payments. Like if we had more stable coins of different currencies, right? The entire cross-border payment swift system could be could be like significantly innovated again around or against, right? You could e either innovate through Swift or innovate with Swift, I guess you could say. But either way, like you could make that way more efficient right now. Yeah. So um, I'm excited. I'm bullish on the future, uh, obviously. But like the main thing that I think is, is, is like what we should be focused on is the tech, right? It's not necessarily like the next, the next, you know, big yield farming opportunity. It's the underlying tech that gave rise to that yield farming opportunity, right? How does it work? How can it be improved? What are the analogs in, you know, traditional finance? How could how is this doing a better job than those analogs? So um, that's a question you got to you know, be asking. Yep. Michael Marcantonio, director at Galaxy, my friend. Thank you for coming on Galaxy Brains. Thank you, my friend. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Michael Marcantonio, director at Galaxy, and Bimnet BB at Galaxy Trading. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email 
read our content at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY research. See you next week.